This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Joel. We're taking a break from the slow burn story this week to talk about Slate Plus and how our members support the work we do here. And if you want to skip promos and ads like this one, the best way to do that is by signing up for Slate Plus. You can just go ahead and do that right now at slate.com slash slow burn. So here's what it's like making a narrative podcast like Slow Burn. I started working on the season back in March, and I immediately dove in by reading books and articles, watching documentaries and interviews, and searching through archives. This all helps the producers and I find the right people to talk to, the people who are integral to the story, who live through it, and can give us a better sense of everything that happened. And we've talked to a lot of people so far. I think we've done, you know, I don't know, about nearly 40 interviews so far this season alone. But it's Slate Plus memberships that allow us the time and resources to really give this story its due diligence. We obviously try to include everything we've learned into the main show, but there's a lot of interesting stories that we just can't fit. So that's why we do our bonus episodes, where every week the producers and I get to tell you about the making of the show, and you get to hear more from our really great sources this season. So let's talk about some of the extended interviews you've missed so far. First, we had what's believed to be one of the final interviews with George Holliday, the man who caught Rodney King's beating on tape and made sure everyone else got to see it. Holliday died in September of complications from COVID-19. He was 61. But when we spoke with him in June, he was really open and told us everything about the tape, even this cool story that involves Arnold Schwarzenegger. But what I couldn't believe was the story about how he sold the videotape. Did you just get a $500 check from KTLA? Because that's the figure that keeps coming up. You got $500. So like, how did that come about and how did you get that money? You know, remember all the other TV stations over the phone that very first night. Hey, we need a copy of the tape. We need a copy of the tape. So the next morning I called uh, from my office. KTLA said, hey, I'm getting all these calls from these other stations. And, and they were actually offering to pay like 100 bucks, 150 bucks to get a copy of the tape. 
And so I called him and said, hey, I'd like to get my tape back uh, so that I can make copies and, and just make a bit of money for, you know, from selling it to these people. There was a lot of people wanting it, so I figured I could make a little bit of money there. They said, sure, why don't you come on in and we'll get, give you the, the tape back. So that afternoon I went to this KTLA. They kind of ushered me into an office. And they kind of, I realize now that the, it was a little bit of an ambush. They had a video camera in there and they had somebody asking me questions and I wasn't paying a lot of attention. But they said, you know what, we'd like to hold on to the exclusivity of this tape for another couple of days. How about we give you a, a $500 check now, we'll hold on to it for two more days and then we give it back to you and you can disseminate it as you want. And I figured, look, I don't have the means to make ta copies because one of the things I was worried about is how am I going to make copies of this tape? You know, it's, I don't have the equipment to do it. I would have to figure that out. I said, okay, let's do that. Let's do the 500 now and then I'll worry about it later. So I got that check for $500. And I was going to go pick up the tape a couple of days later. But by then it had been subpoenaed from Channel 5 by the police department because they were doing their inv internal affairs investigation. So... I wasn't able to get the original back, but luckily I was able to get, they had made a VHS copy of it for me. So I, I got that uh, instead. But then the, the original tape that got subpoenaed by the police department eventually made its way into the FBI's hands. I guess that's because of the second trial. And they have it to this day. I've been trying to get it back, and it's like talking to a wall. Nothing. Man, I mean, this is a tough question to ask, but what do you wish you, you knew then that you know about it today? Like, what do you think you would have done differently then? Oh, totally uh, uh, marketed the tape differently. I mean, it sounds like a, a crude thing to say. You're marketing a tape of that's actually showing a, a gentleman getting beaten up, right? But, uh, but yeah, I definitely would have gone about the way I handled the tape a lot differently. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. A lot of our sources have really helped us understand what Los Angeles was like in the 1980s and 90s. Edward Chang is a professor of ethnic studies, and he was a member of the Black Korean Alliance. He told me about the cultural and social tensions that were building up by the time Latasha Harlins was killed by Soon Ja-do in 1991. So I understand that you arrived in the United States in 1974 at the age of 18. You got there, obviously, at a very fascinating time, right? Because this is like, you know, the first generation of Asian immigrants, but also Korean immigrants that have come to this country after the, the Immigration Act of 65, right? So you're seeing this unfold. You notice this tension between recent immigrants 
and black Americans in L.A. Can you just like lay out what that landscape looked like at the time? Because you obviously it was so salient, the tension that you thought I've got to study this. So like for people that were not around then, what was that like? What were you seeing? Well, initially, uh, you know, it was difficult because the majority of Korean immigrant merchants didn't see that as a problem. They were working hard. They knew nothing but work, work, work. So to them, they were just working to realize the American dream. But because I was fellow Korean immigrants, I was able to communicate in Korean language and persuaded them, you know, I, you know we need to uh, reduce tension. We need to understand each other better. And so I, they gradually accepted me. And sometimes I volunteered to work as a merchant on weekends. You know, I was able to get a full grasp of a growing tension between the two communities. And I, I knew it was a ticking time bomb, I just getting worse and worse. What did the tension look like, though? Like, was it like fights or what was it? Distrust. They really didn't trust each other. Uh, you know, Korean immigrants spoke very f- a little English language, unable to communicate effectively with their customers. And uh, many African-American customers didn't trust uh, Korean merchants. There were lots of rumors going around at the time. Lots of rumors about Korean immigrants. Where did they get the money to start business? Whereas, you know, African-Americans have been here more than 200 years and they're having a hard time getting loans from the financial institutions, unable to start businesses. And yet here... You know, Korean merchants, Korean immigrants just landed a few months ago. Uh, they are able to purchase a grocery market or liquor store and set up stores in my community. And as uh, you know, there's rumors were going around that the U.S. government was providing special funding uh, assistance to Korean merchants and African-Americans are not, right? And uh, Korean merchants were selling inferior products at a much higher price. They were very complaining. Uh, Korean merchants were rude and disrespectful to the customers and they do not live in the community. They do not give it back to the community. You know, many Korean merchants, they didn't know anything about giving back to the community because Korea was so poor. Everyone is in a survival mode. At the time, I know I, I went on Korean radio and newspaper and making you know, ex- you know, efforts to make sure you need to learn proper you know, business etiquettes in the United States. One person we really wanted to focus on this season is LAPD Chief Daryl Gates. We had a long interview with Jim Newton, who covered the police for the LA Times through the 1990s. And Newton told us some really wild stories about Chief Gates that I think exemplifies the power he wielded over the city and the department at the time. In your experience covering other law enforcement agencies, was there anything that distinguished the LAPD from those? Or did you you get the sense that it was fundamentally different in some sort of way from the the other, you know, agencies that you were familiar with? One of the very first things I did in taking over the LAPD was to go out to breakfast with Daryl Gates, who was then the recently retired chief of the LAPD. And the main thing that I was struck with from that meeting is the degree of hostility um, from him toward the paper, um, immediately transferred to me, by the way. I'd never even met him, and he was hostile from the almost the first words <laughs> out of his mouth. In fact, he picked up a menu. We had breakfast at a place in San Marino, a suburb in Los Angeles near Pasadena. He picked up the menu, and he goes, oh, good, they've got quiche, something for you, Jim. And it's just like, 
Oh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Like, uh, <laughs> we haven't even said hello, you know? Um, and he went on to tell me about a colleague that the LAPD had been spying on and they'd found cocaine in his, in a pocket of his pants at a laundromat. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was this incredibly confrontational, kind of threatening first experience. And so anyway, back to your question, when I started covering LAPD, my first impressions were of the combative, not just of Gates, although Gates was the really first impression, but of the combativeness of the institution, the hostility toward the paper. That, you know, I must say that persisted through most of my time covering the police department, the LAPD. A lot of institutional uh, defensiveness, a sense that others uh, in the political and journalism universes were out to get them, that they had to band together to resist politics and kind of nosy civilians was really striking for me. I mean, I had covered City Hall in Atlanta, police-related issues there. I mean, I just had never run into an institution that seemed so top to bottom hostile to any kind of innocent question, frankly. Well, can I, I just want to kind of linger on that uh, breakfast with Daryl Gates, or like that introduction to him. <laughs> I mean, did Rick not tell you that, hey, man, by the way, Chief Gates kind of hates oh. us? No, no, I wasn't surprised that he didn't love the LA Times. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I, I pretty much knew that was coming. I just was surprised at how quickly that transferred to me personally. Like, I mean, listen, I, I spend most of my life talking to people in politics, right? And most people in politics want to have a good relationship with the person covering them. So even if they don't really like me, they don't go out of their way to tell me how much they dislike me. It was, honest to goodness, I mean, we, we met... Uh, you know, a couple feet outside the restaurant. We walked inside, sat down, and I don't recall even saying good morning or how do you do before it was, look, they've got quiche, something for you. No, I think your point is exactly right. I didn't expect that this was going to be a friendly get-together or that it was going to be chummy or anything like that. I just was surprised at how forward the hostility was and how much it seemed to, to be directed at me. First of all, Gates had just retired, right? So there wasn't a reason for him institutionally for him to butter me up in some way. I mean, you know, but, you know, there's just a kind of human civility um, and a kind of strategic calculation that usually goes into that first meeting with a reporter. So it was notably different than that. And I was taken by that. And as you know, here we are 30 years later, I'm still talking about it. So uh, obviously it made an impression. It was important for us to really get to know who Rodney King was beyond George Holliday's videotape. Johnny Kelly, who was one of King's best friends and later his bodyguard, was an important source for that. He was our second interview for this season, and he gave us a lot of perspective on what it was like growing up with Rodney and how things changed for him after the beating. All right, let's go back to the very beginning then. Let's let's go back to your childhood because I know that you grew up in Pasadena, and so this would have been like, what, the 70s, 80s? Yes. You're growing up. So for people that weren't around then, like, what was Pasadena like then? Like, what was it like growing up back then? Uh, Pasadena was nice. It was a nice, quiet place. They did have some gang activity. Uh, we kind of stayed away from the gangs. As a kid there, the police department was kind of shady. You know, that's just like every other police department today, you know, when you uh color. So that's what we had to deal with mostly was the police. Even as a kid, huh? Oh, yeah, most definitely as a kid. What did that look like for y'all? Like, would they just hassle y'all and you walking down the street? Or what did the cops do to y'all? Oh, yeah, you'd be walking down the street. They'd pull you over, check your pockets, hassle you. As we was growing up, our parents would always tell us, whatever you do, stay away from the police. So we grew up knowing to stay away from the police. 
Do you remember meeting Glenn like the first time, like how you met him? Oh yeah, was definitely. Well, how what was that? Uh, my godparents had bought me a dirt bike, a motorcycle, and uh, over by JPL there was a frisbee park, and there was a dam over there with water in it. And Rodney was over there. We was all kids. I was riding my bike, and Rodney was over there getting ready to go fishing. And so I stopped and uh, started talking to him, and we was digging for earthworms so we can go fishing. And we sat there all day with a pole in the water, tried to fish, and found out later there was no fish in the water. <laughs> Wait, how old were y'all with this? How old was it? Uh, we was about nine years old. Oh, man. Y'all, this kind of sounds country yeah. to be California. <laughs> well, I came from the country. I was from Little Rock, Arkansas. So, yeah. I mean, first of all, I know that his his pops was, was nicknamed Kingfish. Yes. Um, and it sounds like fishing was just like a big part of what y'all like to do, right? It oh, just, yeah, most definitely. Fishing was a big thing for us. That was our getaway. That was the only thing we had to do. Back then, they didn't have Nintendos and all that type of stuff. You had to get outside and do stuff. As you got to the end of high school, like what was the directions y'all were headed in? I was heading to the construction field, but for as Rodney, I actually thought he was going to be a pro baseball player. Wow, he was that good. Yeah, he was good. I thought he was going to go pro. That, that's where his heart was at. What happened? He ended up going to jail for one thing. He started getting in trouble, started going off on the wrong path, and that kind of ended things for him. Did you know that he was going on the wrong path as it was happening? I did. I did. I would, I would be with him sometimes. We both was together going off on the wrong path, but he kind of took it further to the right and I went to the left you know uh, I'm not asking you to snitch but he talked about drinking and smoking like at a very young age right so like was it that sort of stuff that was contributing to that oh yeah it was the drinking and smoking yeah most definitely I mean we would go into liquor stores and stuff and steal beer and run out and that type of stuff you know I mean with kids growing up you know there's nothing beautiful about it now but when you look back that's what we was doing did you recognize him as having an alcohol problem even as a kid I didn't recognize him as having an alcohol problem as a kid because we was both doing it. And it didn't come, become a big problem until after the beating. You know, he I mean, he would steal a beer here and there and drink a little alcohol, hard liquor and stuff like that. We both did. But after the uh, incident, it tripled. It was bad. Okay, if you've made it this far, I know you're a fan of Slow Burn. And your one Slate Plus membership can really help us continue making this show. It's only $1 for your first month, and you'll get access to all of these interviews and our behind-the-scenes stories of making the show and our Slow Burn bonus episodes. Once you sign up, you won't hear any ads on any Slate podcast, and you'll get to read everything on Slate.com. Go find all your benefits now at Slate.com slash Slow Tell them I sent you, and thank you. And if you can't swing a membership right now, please show your support by leaving us a rating and review. Every little bit of support counts. Okay, that's all for now. On next week's show, we'll be talking about the trial. Thanks for listening. <laughs>